Welcome to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit organization. I'm Lindsay Langholz, Senior Director for Policy and Program at ACS. In 1923, the Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced in the United States. The century since its introduction has seen generations of women and other activists pursuing ratification and publication. That fight is very much ongoing. Recently, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on how Congress can recognize ratification and enshrine equality in our Constitution. And our guest today was part of that hearing. Kathleen Sullivan is Senior Counsel at Quinn Emanuel Urquhart and Sullivan, former professor of constitutional law at Harvard and Stanford, former dean of Stanford Law School, and she provided testimony at this important committee hearing. Kathleen, welcome to Broken Law. Thank you, Lindsay. So happy to be with you. Oh, we're thrilled to have you here. And I want to start with maybe a super basic. You know, the ERA is celebrating its 100th birthday this year. And just to help us level set, where is the Equal Rights Amendment now legally and politically? Well, that's a great question. How could something so basic as equality between men and women, something so fundamental that 168 nations around the world have it in their constitutions and 26 states have it in their state constitutions, how can the Equal Rights Amendment still not be part of the U.S. Constitution? And the answer is that it was promulgated first by Congress in 1923 It came out of the movement that followed women getting the vote. You know, the right of women to vote only went into the Constitution in the 19th Amendment in 1920. And three years later, Alice Paul and Crystal Eastman and a bunch of other proponents got Congress to introduce the amendment. A hundred years later, I would say, Lindsay, it actually is part of the Constitution. It actually is the 28th Amendment because we now have had 38 states ratify that amendment, but there's a cloud over it. There's a cloud over it because when Congress reintroduced the amendment in 1972, it put a timeline on it, and then it extended the timeline in 1979. And by 1982, there were still only 35 states that ratified. What we what happened is it kind of sat around for a while, and then Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia ratified, adding up to 38 states. So that's the question, Lindsay. Is the ERA now the 28th Amendment to the Constitution because Congress promulgated it, proposed it, and 38 states have now ratified? Or is it too late because Congress imposed a deadline that expired in 1982? Now, the hearing you just referenced could lift the cloud over the ERA and make it clearly and indisputably part of the Constitution because if Congress could impose the deadline, Congress can take the deadline away. And that's what the hearing was about. Excellent. And, you know, you mentioned 38 states. The reason that that's kind of the magic number is Article 5 of the Constitution lays out the process for adding an amendment. And one of those requirements is three-fourths of the states. And so 38 is the magic number. And as you mentioned, we have hit it. What has it looked like sense in terms of what's the conversation been since Virginia became that 38th state? You mentioned the cloud. How has it been received in the courts? How has it been received by Congress? This hearing was a big deal, yes? Like there, there haven't been many hearings. And so it was encouraging, at least to me, to see that the Senate was taking this up. 
Absolutely. Well, there have been joint resolutions proposed in Congress for the last several years, really ever since Virginia ratified joint resolutions by which proponents of the ERA in the House and the Senate, here in the Senate, the latest hearing was a result of the joint bipartisan action of Senator Cardin and Senator Murkowski and, and Senator Durbin as chair of the Judiciary Committee trying to get a hearing on this joint resolution. And the joint resolution would say, notwithstanding the earlier deadline, the ERA is now, for all intents and purposes, part of the Constitution. Now, why would that be so significant? Because really, the only barrier to seeing the ERA as law, as part of our Constitution now, is that congressional deadline. But, you know, Lindsay, Article 5, which you referred to, the part of our Constitution that allows for constitutional amendments, all it said is that Congress may propose amendments by two-thirds votes, and then the states may ratify them by three-quarters votes, and it doesn't say a word about deadlines. It doesn't say a word about you have to do it within 10 years or 40 years or 50 years or even 200 years. And one thing that is astonishing in the ERA debate is why we think there's enforceable deadlines for the ERA when the 27th Amendment to the Constitution, the other most recent amendment to the Constitution, was proposed in 1789, and it wasn't <laughs> yeah. ratified until 1992. In other words, 203 years passed between when James Madison and the other members of the first Congress of the United States proposed the 27th Amendment, which is about Congress's ability to adjust its own pay and ratification, and nobody thought that was too late. Now, the ERA is different, Lindsay, because Congress did put a target date in it. It said, we're sending it, the Equal Rights Amendment out to the states, and we should probably remind your readers of what the Equal Rights Amendment says. It says that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That's the main text of it. And there's nothing in that text about a deadline. But Lindsay, when the, that text went out to the states... Congress had a preamble, and it said, this amendment shall be valid when ratified by three quarters of the states, when that shall happen within seven years. It was a target date. But, you know, just like your teacher can grant an extension on the paper, and <laughs> just like courts grant extensions all the time, Congress could grant an extension, and it did so. In 1979, Congress granted an extension till 1982. And all that the hearing is saying now is that Congress could grant another extension or a repeal of the deadline and say, let's lift that old deadline. Now, you asked what the debate has been. Mm -hmm. There are some people who say, well, Congress set the deadline and it can't be undone by Congress. And it can't be in some people say, well, you know, the states relied on it. But and, and they look back to old amendments. And we started putting deadlines in amendments back in the, in the 20th century. The Prohibition Amendment, which banned alcohol sales in the United States, and then the 21st Amendment, which repealed the 18th Amendment and allowed alcohol sales in the United States again. Those amendments were the first of a series of 20th century amendments to have deadlines. But those early amendments had the deadline in the text, and, and they were a very different kind of deadline. The text said, this amendment shall be inoperative unless ratified by a certain date. That was an expiration date. But the key differences here is when Congress put the deadline in in 1972 and then extended it in 1979, number one, it put it in the preamble, not in the text. 
Number two, it made it a target date, not an expiration date. It said this shall be valid within seven years. It didn't say it shall be inoperative unless passed within seven years. So my view and the view of a lot of constitutional scholars, Lindsay, is that the deadline can't be enforced by a court because it wasn't in the text. And it didn't say it's a deadline. It said it's a target date. And we think it can't be enforced by the archivist. So one other thing we should share with the listeners is, how did we get a constitutional amendment to be understood as in the Constitution? Well, there's a ministerial act of posting the amendment by the person who serves as the archivist of the United States. This is a presidentially appointed position. President Biden's nominee for archivist just had her hearings recently, the same day as the Durban hearings on the ERA. And the archivist generally just doesn't play a role in deciding whether the amendment is law. The archivist just says, okay, I've got 38 states. Here it goes. It goes up on the bulletin board. It goes into the marble. It goes into the printed versions of the Constitution that the government distributes in schools and to visitors to the Capitol. But here the archivist wouldn't do that. And so we have a bit of a legal tussle. You know, we have the archivist under President Trump refused to publish the ERA, the Office of Legal Counsel to the president in the Trump administration said the archivist couldn't publish the ERA. We haven't heard from the archivist in the Biden administration yet, but we heard from the Office of Legal Counsel in the Biden administration, the, the lawyers who advised the president on the Constitution. We heard from President Biden's Office of Legal Counsel is that this should go to Congress because Congress can decide to lift its own deadline. So long story short is we had Republican archivist refusing to publish the ERA. We had a Democratic archivist has not yet ruled. The Democratic Office of Legal Counsel has said, let's get Congress in the mix. Cue Senator Durbin and last the hearings that we just had in Washington. And here there was a debate about whether Congress could lift the deadline. And that's where we are. We had a judicial decision, I should mention, that was adverse to the ratifying states of so Virginia, Nevada, and Illinois had sued. And they said, we're entitled to have a court tell the archivist to publish this amendment. Because hello, we're the 38th state here. We're <laughs> we filled we're out our paperwork. <laughs> we're number 36, 37, 38. We handed in our paper. Now please give us our grade. And when they sued in the D.C. Circuit, the D.C. Circuit dismissed the case on procedural grounds, said, go away. I just I'm not going to decide this. Then it went up to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which the same day as our hearing issued an adverse decision to the proponents of the ERA said, sorry, we're affirming that you don't have a case. So but but I think it's important to note, Lindsay, that the reason why the D.C. Circuit ruled that way is it said, well, you can only tell the archivist what to do when it's clear and undisputable. And it's not clear and indisputable because there's a cloud from the congressional deadline. So long story short is if Congress lifts the cloud by extending or repealing the deadline, saying notwithstanding the earlier deadline, the ERA is now law, I think that would change the legal posture of the case. It would mean it's now clear and indisputable that the ERA should become law. And that would allow a court to enforce a mandamus against the archivist, or it would allow the archivist to just act on her own once, once she's in office. I want to ask about one of the things that you discussed with Senator Durbin during that committee, and you referenced earlier the preamble piece of the conversation. I thought he had a particularly interesting question, which is, is there 
is there are times when people use the preamble of our constitution as force of law, or is it really more of a rhetorical piece? And I was hoping you might not to rehash that exchange, but, but talk a little bit about the ways in which preambles typically serve a purpose within this process, but not necessarily as the text itself. Well, preambles normally inform our aspirations, but they are not the law. So preambles, the the preamble to the Constitution is one of the most beautiful texts ever written, but it's never been enforced by court. So the idea that a preamble to a new part of the Constitution would prevail over the wish of 38 states to have it in the Constitution would be very unusual. Preambles don't govern our interpretations of statutes, and they haven't governed our interpretation of the Constitution. So I think the fact that the deadline was just in the preamble is significant. And one more point is, because it was in the preamble, it can be repealed by majority vote. Remember before we talked about Article 5, it requires supermajorities. It requires two-thirds of the Congress and three-quarters of the states, because amendments were not supposed to be easy. James Madison said they should be great and extraordinary occasions. We've had a lot of amendments proposed to the Constitution, very few enacted, 27 over two and a quarter centuries. And that's intentional. They're supposed to be difficult. Our Constitution is supposed to be foundational. But when you put something in the preamble, that's just an ordinary law. It could be passed by majority vote. It could be rescinded by majority vote. That's why this joint resolution just needs a majority, a simple majority. Now, of course, there'll be a debate about whether it can be filibustered. I know a lot of the listeners are extremely familiar with filibuster debates when it comes to judicial nominations, and it remains a question whether this could be filibustered in the Senate. But, you know, it, it, we've abolished the filibuster for judicial nominations, and if you're going to abolish the filibuster for who interprets the Constitution, why would you allow a filibuster when the people try to change the Constitution. But that's a debate that's yet to be had. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. ACS is the foremost progressive legal organization in the country. And every year, our national convention is the premier progressive legal gathering. We bring together lawyers, law students, scholars, judges, activists, and policymakers to examine some of the most urgent and challenging issues confronting our nation. This year, our national convention will be May 18th through the 20th at the Capitol Hilton in Washington, D.C. You should be there. Register today to benefit from our early bird special. To register, go to acslaw.org slash 2023 convention. Again, that's acslaw.org slash 2023 convention. And now back to the show. One of the things you highlighted in your testimony is the bipartisan nature, not only of this current joint resolution, as you mentioned, Senator Murkowski is a co-sponsor and co-lead, but also for the entire process of the ERI, this hundred years, it has been a bipartisan effort. And so I was hoping you wouldn't mind expanding a little bit on what that has looked like over time. I'd love to, Lindsay. And let me put in a plug for a great book that people might want to read, a book by Julie Sook, professor at Fordham Law School called We the Women. Yes. It's about, it, it, it's about the women who were proponents of the ERI. It's a wonderful history. And I commend it to anyone who's interested in the history of the ERA. But I think it's important to remember that once upon a time in America, we had bipartisan consensus on some things. And one thing that was a really a source of great bipartisan consensus once upon a time 
was the, that there should be equal rights for women in the Constitution. So if you go back to 1923, you see that uh, there were bipartisan efforts, including Republican women who were for the ERA. And then in the 1960s and 70s, leading up to the 72 version of the ERA, there were Republican congresswomen and Democratic congresswomen reaching across the aisle to one another. I'll just to highlight a few names that will be familiar only to older members of the audience, but Republican congresswomen, Florence Dwyer, Charlotte Reed, Margaret Heckler, Catherine Dean May. They worked across the aisle with Democratic congresswomen, Martha Griffiths, Bella Abzug from New York, Patsy Mink from Hawaii, Shirley Chisholm from New York, Louise Day Hicks from Massachusetts, Edith Green from Oregon. These were bipartisan coalitions of women, and there were bipartisan coalitions of men in Congress, too. It wasn't thought to be much of a, a partisan issue up until it got to 35 states. And then there was a bit of a partisan division about whether more states should ratify. There was a lot of fear-mongering about the ERA, a lot of threats posed in you know, the popular rhetoric. Uh, ERA will lead to unisex bathrooms and so forth. Phyllis Schlafly, who was an extremely strategic organizer, organized a lot of efforts against the ERA at the local level and tried to stop ratification. So I think what's significant about the hearing we just had is that it brought bipartisanship back. There was Senator Cardin, a Democrat, sitting with Senator Murkowski of Alaska, a Republican, both saying that this is a foundational principle that should now know party lines, whether what what distinguishes America from countries in the world where girls can't go to school like boys can, women can't appear in public under certain circumstances the way men can, it should be so obvious that in the United States, equality between men and women is a foundational principle that it should be a bipartisan effort. And so that was, I think, the hearing we just saw was a throwback to the old days of the 20s and the 60s and 70s when this was thought to be a bipartisan issue. Absolutely. One thing that you referenced that came up during the hearings, again, so history has repeated itself a bit, is there were some conservative members of the committee who kind of relied on, honestly, some of these exact same in their mind, parade of horribles to to try and defeat this latest version of the joint resolution. And there was an extraordinary amount of time spent on women's lacrosse, which I wasn't expecting. (laughs) There was a lot of talk about women's lacrosse in that hearing, but it made me go back and look. And there were, there were flyers back when there were 35 States and and Schlafly was leading her campaign to, to stop the ERA that use some of these exact same examples, boys, on girls sports teams and bathrooms. And I'm curious what you make of the fact that it, it's the same issues that are getting brought up to try and, and fear monger a bit about what this amendment could do. Sure. Well, you know, the, the, the fear mongering and the parade of horribles is just as misguided now as it was back in the 70s. And maybe if I could take a step back here, Lindsay, you know, the Constitution speaks in very broad, majestic, foundational principles. Nobody knew when they wrote the words, no state shall deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, what life liberty or property was going to be defined as years later or what due process of law would mean. Nobody knew when the framers wrote that there should be 
no unreasonable searches or seizures of persons, papers, houses, or effects, whether that would be applied to cell phones someday. Nobody knew when they wrote about the right to bear arms, whether the rules for muskets and rifles would later be applied to assault rifles and bump stocks. When we write broad, majestic principles into the Constitution, we do not always know, and we certainly aren't pre-deciding how they'll be interpreted in the future. So yes, there will be debates in the future about should women be drafted alongside men? And there are important issues about whether sports are different and girls' teams should be able to continue as girls' teams without boys on them. There will be important issues in the future to decide about women's access to reproductive freedom, but nothing about enacting the ERA today will decide or prejudge any of those debates. The Constitution doesn't include judge-made standards of review. Those are decided by courts later. So I think it's got everything backwards. We should be turning the telescope around. We should be looking at the big picture. We should be asking, do we want to be like the rogue nations of the world who allow women to be treated unequally to men under their law? Or do we want to be like all the other industrialized democracies of the entire world, like all the countries who copied our constitution in so many other respects, like every country that's adopted a constitution since World War II? Do we want to be like the countries of the world who share our democratic principles and values by having the ERA and the constitution? Or do we want to be so afraid and so small-minded that we let today's little partisan squabbles and anxieties keep us from having that in our constitution? I think the answer is so clear, but you're quite right. The fear-mongering today is very reminiscent of the fear-mongering that worked in the playbook of 40 years ago. Yeah. Well, and there was a lot of conversation, both at the committee, but also just generally when you talk to folks about the ERA, my experience has been you usually get two one of two ways, either, oh, I thought that already was in the Constitution, <laughs> or, well, we just don't need that anymore because we have laws that deal with gender equality, making sure that there is equality. And I was hoping you might talk a little bit about both that that patchwork, I think you referred to it as, of laws that does provide some protection and also why something found more foundational is, is still needed. Sure. Great question. And I agree with you. Most people think the ERA must already be in the Constitution. And then they say, well, if it's not, it's not needed. Well, it's very much, it's needed more now than ever. I think the ERA is needed more now than ever. And let me explain why. We, we do have a series of Supreme Court rulings that started in the 1970s that took the language, no state shall deprive any person of the equal protection of the law, That was passed in the aftermath of the Civil War. It's one of the Reconstruction Amendments. It's Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And it was definitely not meant to protect women. It was meant principally at that time to protect uh, African Americans from discrimination in the wake of the Civil War. And it was most decidedly not about giving women equal protection. How do we know that? Because just a few years later, the 14th Amendment is promulgated in 1868. In the 1870s, the Supreme Court issued a decision saying women had no equal right to vote, Minor versus Happersat. That was in existence until the 19th Amendment was enacted in 1920. And in a case that's dear to all of us women lawyers, 
Bradwell versus Illinois, the Supreme Court upheld Illinois' bar on women's access to the bar, prohibition on women being lawyers. So we know that the framers of the 14th Amendment did not at the time think that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment gave women equality of professional opportunity or even the most foundational right, the right to vote. So how did we kind of shoehorn women into the Equal Protection Clause when they weren't meant to be there? Well, a number of great advocates, including the late great Justice Ginsburg, when she was an attorney for the ACLU and other organizations, established an analogy to race discrimination and said, well, gender discrimination should also not be allowed by the law because it's not related to a person's ability to contribute. And one should be judged by something other than one's gender when it comes to voting or professional opportunity or social security benefits or ability to confer alimony on a divorcing spouse and so forth. So there's a series of cases largely about benefits, which held that, well, it denies equal protection if you treat women and men differently. There was an exception if there were real differences, right? So pregnancy benefits, there are real differences. Men don't get pregnant. So the court said there are real differences. And the other thing the court did is it allowed remedial discrimination kind of in favor of women. (laughs) Like if women had only been paid 30 cents on the dollar for their whole career, they could get 60 cents on the dollar in their social security to make up for it. So there, if you could, if you were overcoming past discrimination against women, you could um, have a, have a law that treated men and women formally differently. But let's look at those cases. You know, it's the old expression. If you don't have a chair at the table, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And this was the old folding chair. If you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. This was a made-up series of equal protection analogies that were trying to get women into the Constitution through legal argument. But, Lindsay, the problem with relying on Supreme Court decisions is what the Supreme Court maketh, the Supreme Court sometimes taketh away. Where do we need to look further for that than the Dobbs decision overruling Roe v. Wade after women had relied on it for 50 years to protect the right to abortion? And that was a decision that said, well, how can abortion be in the Constitution through the Due Process Clause when in 1868, people didn't think it was part of due process? Well, if you use that reasoning today, all of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's decisions would be overruled because women weren't supposed to be part of the Equal Protection Clause in 1868. And that's why I think after Dobbs, the ERA is needed now more than ever. We need a seat at the table because the folding chair could collapse. That's so well said. I'm curious what you would say to younger women and other activists who maybe are are thinking through, particularly in the wake of Dobbs, kind of what gender equality looks like and may not immediately think of the ERA first. You know, is there an entry point for the next generation of activists to, to come into the ERA fold or are, are there folks already doing that work? Sure. Well, I think ERA is part of a a multi-platform strategy and young women who want to advance the true equality of women, not just the formal equality of women, but the substantial equality of women need to pay attention to a lot of things that are beyond the ERA. The ERA is about how government treats men and women. Does it treat men and women equally? The issue of pay equality in the private sector, ERA isn't going to reach that. The issue of reproductive freedom and abortion rights after Dobbs is a much more complicated debate. The ERA is not going to solve it. It's not going to answer it. 
whether equal protection has anything to say about reproductive freedom. As we said before, that remains to be worked out in the courts in the future. So my advice to young women who want to fight for women's substantial equality is you have to keep doing it on many fronts, on fighting for equal pay act and and equal pay acts and their equivalents, fighting for reproductive rights, doing that through local legislation. Remember, Dobbs sent the abortion issue back to the states, but a lot of states, sometimes surprisingly, as in Kansas, are saying that reproductive rights are very important to the women of their state. So, you know, my advice is the ERA is foundational. It's about our most fundamental principles. It's what we chisel into the marble wall. It's what we add to a document, a brilliant document that served us very well for well over two centuries now. But that doesn't mean it's the be all and end all. You know, just as we said, the you know, some the, the people who are against the ERA, they're saying it's going to do a lot of things it's not going to do. And I don't want the supporters of the ERA to think it's going to be a magic bullet. It's not going to solve all the problems for women. But it's such a basic foundational principle. How could we not have equal rights for men and women in the Constitution? And now more than ever, we shouldn't just rely on the judicial decisions, the sort of patchwork from the 1970s, because the new methodology of the Supreme Court is to say, what did they think in 1868? And we know that in 1868, the framers of the 14th Amendment did not think women and men were equal. Mm-hmm. You wrote this really great piece for the California Law Review, the title Constitutionalizing Women's Equality, where you said, in the absence of gender-specific constitutional text, the story of constitutionalizing American women's equality is a story of creative interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause and of advocates' bravado. And to me, as I I listen to you say this, I, I also hope that once the ERA is recognized as the 28th Amendment fully, I, I think there is for future courts to decide, but also future advocates to, to figure out what that means for that particular time as well. And there's great power in, in having some of that flexibility. But yeah, you know, it, it's so easy for right now to get into a little bit of doom and gloom because of the current court, for those of us who particularly care about progressive issues. But it is not the court we are stuck with forever. And so hopefully, even if they did not use the ERA to its fullest, another generation could. Lindsay, that's exactly right. The beauty of the Constitution is that it enables us to reach toward higher ideals of inclusion and equality and justice over time than were imagined by their founders. That's why we the people in the preamble is such an amazing way to begin the Constitution. We the people has expanded over time to include all of us. And future generations of advocates, if they had the ERA at their disposal, could bring about wonderful changes for women that perhaps we can't even imagine at this time. And that's why we need the ERA. It's so future generations will never have uncertainty that women and men are equal in our country. Yes. We we love to ask a question of all of our guests, which is where can folks turn to to either take action or to learn more? You mentioned Julie Suck's book, and I wanna I wanna highlight that once again. We love Julie Suck here at ECS. But are there any other places that people can go to learn or to to get involved? How can folks take that next step at home? Absolutely. There's a wonderful organization called the ERA Coalition, and everyone can resource their website online, the ERA Coalition. It's full of frequently asked questions, it's full of contacts, and it's a wonderful place to start. 
And we'll include a link to the coalition in our show notes too, so that you don't even have to Google it. You can just click right there. That's fantastic. I am so grateful. I want to ask if there's anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to lift up, whether it be about the national ERA, state ERAs, whatever we've missed that you want to make sure that we highlight. Well, in in fairness, Lindsay, I do think we should cover just one last issue, which is some states have purported to rescind their rent. Yes. How can I forget rescissions? (laughs) Let's get into it. (laughs) There are five and potentially six states who said, never mind. Oh, never mind. We ratified it, but we really would like to take it back. Well, I, I, I think it's important to recognize that that's one more argument besides the congressional deadline that could create a cloud over the ERA. But here's what I would say to dispel the cloud. You know how conservatives often like to rely on textualism and originalism? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> and federalism. So mm-hmm. I think if you're a textualist, originalist, and federalist, then you should not think that states can rescind. Why? Because Article 5 is a very unique part of the Constitution, and it just has two things in it. It says Congress can propose the amendment by two-thirds vote, and the states may ratify an amendment by three-quarters of the states. And it says nothing about rescission. So it really is an example of a one-way ratchet that an amendment goes into the Constitution, and it keeps on being available for ratification, but it isn't subject to rescission. Now, on that, we have a very important historical precedent that rescissions don't count. There were states that wanted to rescind the 14th Amendment. We got past the Civil War. We got into Reconstruction. This majestic 14th Amendment guarantees equal protection and due process. There were states that wanted to rescind. Congress refused to recognize the rescissions. And I believe that here, Congress could, if forced, refuse to recognize the rescissions. And I don't think that the states have a constitutional authority to rescind the way they have an authority to ratify. So it may be a a strange way to end an American Constitution Society broadcast, but if you just stay faithful to originalism, textualism, (laughs) federalism, the principles that are often espoused by those in the Federalist Society, you should be for the ERA being the 28th Amendment. Yeah, it's such a good point. And I think also the fact that states have tried this before and not even that unrecently. You know, there have been states who've tried to kind of make political hay out of saying, we're going to rescind the the Reconstruction Amendments. And it has been in no corner accepted as, as practice. I actually think that's a great way to end an ACS product because we love to talk about the expansiveness of the Constitution. And we will read it however it needs to be read to, to get there. Exactly. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for taking this opportunity to shed light on such an important issue, the Equal Rights Amendment. The more people can write to their senators and Congress people to express the desire that Congress lift the deadline and allow the 28th Amendment to be recognized as part of the Constitution, counter pressure can fight off some of the, the fear mongering that's going on out there. Absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us today. This has been so helpful to, to break it all down and just kind of understand what's actually going on and also what's at stake. And so we so appreciate your time. I also want to thank our listeners for finding Broken Law. Please be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you want to hear more about the ERA and some of the activists who got us to this point, I encourage you to go back to episode 67 for my conversation with Kate Kelly. If you are enjoying the show, help us bring it to more listeners by giving us a five-star review and recommending Broken Law to a friend. If you have ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. 
Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interest it really serves, and whose it does not. <laughs>